Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. We live in an amazing time. And if we can't look at the problems that are actual problems or the history of why they're problems and for the common good, or even if it's just for the good of our staff, change them, change these things, these practices, then what the fuck are we doing? Then we're just playing chef, playing restaurant. It's like, I don't want to play restaurant. I want to leave this earth knowing that I did more good than bad. Welcome to Full Comp a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. When we reflect upon the failure rate within this industry, and when we look at the labor crisis that we're currently facing, the easiest question to ask is, who's to blame? The hardest answer to stomach is us. To one degree or another, as an industry, we've dug the hole we find ourselves in. So that's the bad news. But the good news is, that means we're in the driver's seat. Today we chat with Jason Vincent, a talented chef and restaurateur who's taken the time to look into his past to ensure a better future for himself and for his team. I can only speak from personal experience. So at Giant, we opened with an unbelievable team of professionals. Unbelievable. In the kitchen, people that had started with me 10 years ago as interns, the ones that you can teach and talk to and learn from and know and trust. So I had my pick of people. So like the kitchen crew was like fucking rock stars, people who had been running their own restaurants. They were the line cooks. And then Josh, my partner, pulled the same scope of talent from the front of the house. And it was just like murder's row of like, holy shit. It was an all-star team. Regardless of their experience, hopefully this would have happened even if we didn't have the murder's row, we took care of them and we made sure that they were heard and validated and their ideas were put into practice and things like that. And they stayed forever. We had almost zero turnover for four years. And then the pandemic hit. And case by case, some of the relationships I definitely fucked up, some of the relationship they fucked up. And I am trying to be realistic about the ones that I fucked up. I think it's a human thing for people to try and say like, that wasn't my fault, that was this person's fault. That's almost never 100% true. So I'm trying to be better about that. I'm trying to like work through how did I fuck this up? It's just some of those relationships are going to take me a while to find closure on. And some of them just didn't want to come back to the industry. Some of the people who were professionals, professional servers, and as a quick aside, there's a ton of dignity in that. And people outside of the industry don't typically see it that way. They see it as a second job or something you're just doing for a little bit or whatever. Some of those people were like, echoing exactly what you said before the interview. 
there were so many big cracks in this industry. This industry was broken a long time ago, decades ago. It was made broken. You know, it was made right. half. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to come back. Either they had family that they wanted to be with, completely understandable. They didn't want to be anybody's punching bag, completely understandable. They just didn't want to fucking do it anymore. Completely understandable. But I don't think that part of it is in hospitality specific. I mean, I don't know anybody that went into this pandemic and through the course of it said, yeah, this is good. Like what I'm doing right now with my life is exactly what I should be doing. Right. Maybe that's because of the people I know or the industry that I'm in. But again, my wife's not in this industry. Her and all of her friends rethought their lives. At least let that become a thought experiment. There's no way not to. You can't go through something like this. I'm definitely not just talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and countless others. Oh, yeah. The Me Too movement as well, I think, really shined a light on the things that we've done wrong in this industry. Absolutely. I mean, it's real. It is the way this industry is. And unfortunately, I think it's the way society is. So yeah, if the question is, do you think people should reassess what they want to do with their lives? Fuck yeah. Go ahead and do it. Life's too short not to. A word that keeps popping into my mind time and time again is reliability. And like, if someone was to ask me, what is my greatest frustration with like running a team in the hospitality industry? It's that I feel like largely they're unreliable. And what I did during the pandemic was I really evaluated how reliable I was as an owner, how reliable I was as an operator. And the truth is, I'm not. And the reason being, that lunch shift that I gave you five days a week is solely dependent on the volume that I do on that shift. And if I can't make it work and the community doesn't want me to operate that service, you lost your job or you just lost enough shifts that you can no longer pay your bills. It's like we're all subject to these extraneous circumstances and it makes it really difficult to carve out a career in the industry. And then I look at One Fair Wage and everything that Saru is doing over there and all of the things I didn't think about that came to light, whether it was the Me Too movement or how tipping negatively affects women and all of these different things. I was very overwhelmed throughout the pandemic with these realizations of what an unhealthy environment it is. Do you think that, and you said that obviously it's foundationally broken, but is it chicken or the egg? Do you think that it breeds, the industry itself breeds an unhealthy environment? Or do you think that it attracts people by the sheer nature of the industry that have unhealthy inclinations? I guess I kind of think that one punctuates the other. Like I said, I've had the good fortune to work for and have role models who are good people, who are genuinely good people. I've had health insurance since I was 25 because of the places that I worked and didn't pay for it. But I was an asshole. <laughs> it's like, right. how did I become the asshole when I worked for all these good people? My parents aren't assholes. My parents taught me to be a good person. And I was an angry drunk. and embarrassed myself in ways that I still think about daily. So I did a panel one time with a Chicago journalist who's a complete numbnut. And this guy was like, 
he's like a fanboy. He had us all up on stage and he's like, isn't being in a kitchen great? It's like a big pirate ship. And it's like, everybody's like a pirate, like all these crazy analogies. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I don't want to work on a pirate ship. Because you're right. If you steer the ship into a storm, how reliable are you? How do you expect to get people on that ship who aren't complete psychopaths, right? So the chicken and the egg thing, it's like, it's not a healthy way to look at it. You got to bite the bullet. If you're going to own a place, if you're going to employ people, I have to be the one that sets it up so that we have fucking sonar, so that we can avoid the storm. Put the money into the sonar, into the navigation system, because a lot of people do it with this like overly romanticized version of like that. We're going to be pirates. Or we're going to open up a like nuts and bolts place and we're just going to run it ourselves. And my wife's going to be the hostess, even though she has no restaurant experience. And I'm just going to change the menu every day based on my whims. Then it's just like an exercise in futility and ego. And it's like, if you want people to come into a restaurant to feed your ego, get a fucking Instagram page, get a hobby. Because playing with people's livelihoods, people's lives, is not a good way to boost your ego. A good way to boost your ego is to (laughs) provide a safe space for people to work and consistency in personality. And then people will come up to you and say, thank you for being a good employer. And that feeds the ego in a much more fulfilling way than you know, make sure you tell the table that we got this salt from the Dead Sea. And it was, (laughs) it's just like, what are you doing? Where does that fit into a necessary building block of society? It's nowhere. It doesn't exist. All this horse shit, this like, I'll call it the lucky peach dynamic, where it's like, you tell easily influenced kids who are starting a line cook that read Lucky Peach and you'll know everything about cooking. This is your opinion, and you should definitely go out and spout your opinion to everybody that'll listen, and you should have this swing and dick mentality. And it's like training that out of people has been mildly successful, but definitely one of my hopes for the industry, one of the things that I am proud to say that I try and do. You can't feed that beast. That needs to go away. Again, no disrespect to like, David Chang or anything like that. But Lucky Peach was like, I saw it as a bad idea from the beginning. One of the things I thought was so interesting is the fact that you've had subsidized healthcare for so long. And I know that in 2016, you guys offered it at Giant, which is only a 44 seat restaurant. How did you pull that off? Full disclosure, we considered doing it from the beginning when we first opened and we chickened out because we weren't sure if we were going to be busy or not. So we waited, I think, six months. We might have waited a year after we opened to do it. And then we kind of held our nose and just went for it. Owning a small restaurant, or I guess not being part of a bigger corporate group, it's like the devil and the angel on your shoulder. I know a bunch of very smart people who are heads of big corporate groups. And they were, unfortunately, the devil on my shoulder saying, don't do it. You won't have the money. Margins are thin, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, frankly, our margins weren't that thin. We were doing pretty good for a 44-seat restaurant. We had steady cash flow, and we were paying our bills, and we were paying off our investors on time. 
and all that stuff. And it was like, okay, so what am I really doing? Am I going to pocket that money or am I going to sleep well and provide health insurance? At that point, I was still drinking a lot and still maybe trying to replace some of that emptiness with goodwill towards people. But again, like I've always had health insurance and what was I going to do? Like me and my partners have health insurance, but you guys don't. If you get hit by a car, you're fucked. If you fall down a step, you're fucked. If you get cancer, you're fucked. It's like, no, I couldn't do that. I didn't want to do that. So we tried, I think we were the first restaurant in Chicago. And now there are several, which I'm very proud of that put a surcharge on the bill. Ours was at that point, 2%. It's now 3%, might be 4%. But 4%, let's say what it is now, goes directly to healthcare for the employee and for everybody who wants it. It's a great plan. It's a PPO. It's like you get actual healthcare. There's a very low deductible and people have used it for big fucking shit that stoked my ego because they said, thank you. That's all. That's all I want. And then we ask for a hundred bucks a month from them, each employee, and then we pay the rest. So it's like really just as simple as we're fortunate to be in a neighbor, a very liberal neighborhood. People aren't going to complain. We're not downtown. There's not a lot of tourists. So nobody complains except for on Facebook, I'm sure. But the staff loves it. They pay a hundred bucks a month. They have full coverage. And what does it take for me? Like every November, we look at the money we've saved up and the money that we're going to owe. And we say, okay, out of our P&L, $7,000 a month is going to come out. That's a made up number. But when the sales are slower in January, it could be $10,000. So you're doing less sales and you owe more money. But I mean, it's once you blend it over the year, it's not that big of a deal. It's that simple. If it's not a big deal and the benefit far outweighs the cost, there's no reason not to. So when we opened up Chef Special, which is our other place, we just did it from the beginning. And who knows? That could be one of those restaurants that like doesn't make it. We all could. We wake up every day going, we're going to close today. But it's like, I don't know, maybe it's Jewish guilt. If one of the people who I have pledged to create a safe space for 40 hours a week, that's a lot of time. Like, what am I going to say? But whatever happens to you on the outside of it doesn't matter. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that health insurance based on employment is garbage as a practice. Like single payer, Medicare for all, that is absolutely the way to go. But we're walking on the road that's paved right now. So if we have to pave it a little further, fine. I want to talk about the surcharge. So we offered subsidized health care 2018. And we found the same thing, that as a function of volume relative to price, that we could afford to do it some months easily, some months less easily, but that we could always afford to do it. Now, we didn't do a surcharge. And the reason was, I just decided to raise prices. And I think we raised prices just about 4% across the board. And the reason I chose to do that was because I feel to a certain degree that the surcharge is apologetic. But it's saying, I'm sorry, I have to charge you more money. Here's why I'm charging you more money. And I feel like there's a much larger conversation to have around, one, how you guys came to the decision for it to be a surcharge as opposed to just raising prices. And then also a larger conversation about pricing in general and 
why we feel guilt when we raise prices, but the guy that's running the gas station down the street doesn't walk up and say, hey, I know it was a little cheaper last week. I'm really sorry about that. Here's why. That's a big question. So the first part, we decided to do the surcharge. Partially, the first phrase that comes to my mind, which is telling of my headspace back then, was to pick a fight. Yeah. To say like, this is a fucked up part of society and this is a fucked up part of our industry. And you guys need to understand that the people working here, they're not like you. Their employer doesn't typically provide health insurance, to be honest. We crunched the numbers. So nothing on our menu is over $19. And we set it up that way because we're in a neighborhood. We're a small neighborhood restaurant. We want to be busy on Tuesdays. We don't want to be known as a special occasion place. We don't even have birthday candles. This is who we are and we were owning it. So we didn't want to raise the prices past $19. And being in the city, our workers' comp insurance is through the roof. All of our insurances are through the roof. And those are based on sales. So if we're raising the prices 4%, our sales go up. And that's a ballooned number that doesn't mean anything, but it does mean that our insurance is going to charge us a lot more. Because then we wouldn't be able to raise the prices 4%. We'd have to raise them 8% just to net the same amount of money to pay for health insurance. So there's something called a cafeteria plan, which allows employees to contribute to health insurance benefits supplied by their employer pre-tax. So the money that they're providing doesn't get taxed by the government. So we don't have to charge them $125 just to net the $100. The surcharge on the bill isn't income and it isn't a sale. So that doesn't get taxed. Maybe I'm giving away the game here and the IRS is going to be like, oh, we got to close that loophole, but it's for fucking healthcare. We're writing a check every month to Blue Cross for $10,000. This is a lot of money. So that's why we decided to go that way. And again, we were unsure of it. And four years in, we're sure it works. And other places have done it for, they've tacked on like, and to their credit, they're honest about it, but they've tacked on like, we use this as partially to pay the employees. That's horseshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Putting a surcharge on a bill to pay employees is horseshit. But then you look at the fancier places, the Alinea and whatever, they're doing the same thing with their surcharge. They put on a service charge that, again, isn't a sale. It's not income yet. But once they take it all in and distribute the income, then the employee gets taxed. But it's like, is that all going to employees? It's not going to their health care because they don't fucking have it. Is it going to brand new pans and a thousand tomatoes that are perfectly shaped and sized? Probably. Is it going into the owner's pockets? Maybe. Either way, it's not cool. So we're confident in how we're doing it. And if people want to complain or not pay it, we'll take it off the bill. But I mean, when we're being honest, if they're spending $100 and they're getting tacked on $4 and they want to complain about it or take it off the tip or whatever, that's up to them. Nobody has at this point. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> we had one lady who works for Blue Cross who came in like a year after we started and she was like feigning concern. She was like, I don't think your business model is going to support this and blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of like, it's worked so far. So appreciate your opinion, but this is a good thing. And 
sometimes people just get so the hamster wheel just kind of goes and goes and goes and they're like this is the way it is and this is the way it should be and this is the way it will be and it's just like we live in an amazing time and if we can't look at the problems that are actual problems or the history of why they're problems and for the common good, or even if it's just for the good of our staff, change them, change these things, these practices, then what the fuck are we doing? Then we're just playing chef, playing restaurant. It's like, I don't want to play restaurant. I want to leave this earth knowing that I did more good than bad. And I got a long way to go, but I'm trying. And if this is the feather in my cap, it's a good one. Has it helped you learn new talent? Has it helped you retain talent? Well, I don't know if it's specifically that. I would think that has something to do with it. Before the pandemic, we were at $15 an hour for kitchen staff. And literally, as soon as the pandemic hit, we gave everybody a raise, not knowing what was going to go on. But right now, everybody starts, all the cooks start at $20 an hour. And we're never going back. And I've apologized profusely to, and I'll do it here, I apologize forever, paying people less than their value and doing it because I was scared of a restaurant going out of business that absolutely was not going to go out of business. Did you raise prices when you raised wages? Are you still at $19 an hour, average pricing? There's nothing over $19 an hour. Some of the lower price stuff, we got a couple of like little bites. We have a biscuit that was $3 and it's now 4 And we had a little fun single biter that was 5 and it's now 7 And that's not necessarily raising our check average. It's not changing that side of the equation. But the other side of the equation hasn't really changed that much either. It's a couple thousand dollars more per payroll. I'm proud of it. I'm glad we did it. I fought for it. And they deserve it. I mean, all I can think is your menu must have been priced appropriately to begin with. Because it doesn't seem like, I mean, people talk about razor thin margins. I think the average net of a full-service restaurant is 6%. I think that subsidized health care plus an extra $5 an hour for your team, that if you were netting out anywhere near 6%, it would obliterate your profitability. So you must be controlling your other costs responsibly, and you must have been priced appropriately to begin with, right? I won't say no based on like food and liquor costs and all the granular shit, but like for us, a big one is rent. We're in a neighborhood in Chicago. We're not downtown. We're not in the loop. Our rent at Giant is $3,000 a month. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and we have a 20 year lease in which in year 20, it's $4,000. So yeah, I mean, we were thrifty with that kind of stuff. And we opened with like used equipment and all that kind of stuff. And we didn't buy Cambros. We used those white plastic tubs that fish come in with the snap tops or whatever. We still use those. But we have butcher's block on the pasta table now. We're thrifty and we're very proud of our technique with food and treating it appropriately. But I don't know, like I'm going to come up with a dumb example that maybe people understand. We don't serve truffles and foie gras and say, this is the greatest experience that you'll ever have. And we've done nothing to it and whatever this is what it should taste like and charge $50 for it or whatever. We get Brussels sprouts, common food, and we jazz them up. We treat them appropriately and we charge $12 for them. That's where the money goes. So like our food cost is relatively low, which is great. 
I got to be honest, I'll dispute that razor thin margin thing. Obviously, sometimes it's true, but sometimes it's not. And I think people, restaurant owners and industry vets have heard that from people. So they see it as a get over on an argument for doing more with their money. Like their margins are actually closer to 10 to 15%, not razor thin, but they've been told for so long that restaurant margins are slim. And maybe they haven't been told accurately and they think 10 to 15% is slim, not knowing that it's robust. And they use it. They use it as a crutch, as a cudgel to beat down any argument for doing anything nice, for giving out bonuses yearly or raises yearly or vacation time or sick pay or healthcare. And they say, no, 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 the margins are too thin. And I'm not saying those people are all living on the top of Fuck Mountain, but some of them are doing pretty well and their employees are not. And I think those people need to look in the mirror for a solid 20 years and have some empathy for the 20-year-old who's just coming into this industry and not feed them the same line of horseshit that we were fed. We're in a unique position to remove the smoke and mirrors for the next generation of industry professionals, which I think we will still have if we stop fucking lying to them. I mean, I worked in a place where they would hand out trucker speed before service. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it's those little, it comes in like little two per paper tear off bags. And they just had boxes of them. And we were going to get our dicks kicked in to the point where they would hand that shit out and say, let me know when you need more. Go, 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 go. It's like, I'm not doing that. I would rather say, go take a break, take a walk around the block, get some water. I mean, very human stuff. Go to the bathroom, call your girlfriend, text your boyfriend. Who gives a shit what you do? Get the fuck off the floor for five minutes. I know you have tables, but you don't need these people yelling at you for the next five minutes. You don't even need these people being nice to you for the next five minutes. You're overwhelmed. Chill, (laughs) please. With responsibility, those people are responsible to the point where they're not going to take advantage of it. You got to have the trust in your staff and the design of the restaurant to be able to say to Jimmy, hey, you need some water, man. Doing okay? You need a granola bar? Something like that. Jimmy's going to go down and get a granola bar. and He's not going to sit down there playing fucking Space Invaders. He's going to get a granola bar, collect himself, and come back up and do his fucking job most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, people are people. They are. And as we get back to work and as the world gets back to normal, I've spent a lot of time trying to remind myself of the lessons that I don't want to forget that I picked up over the last 12 to 15 months. Because I think it's really easy to get back into old habits. And I've got a two-part question for you. So the first part is, what lessons did you learn over the last 12 to 15 months that you hope you don't forget that you intend to move forward with? And then the bigger question after that is, what lessons should the industry at large take away from this? I think one of the bigger lessons that I learned is about hiring practices, about the fact almost indisputable fact that the restaurant industry as a whole discriminates against people of color and immigrants. And this whole industry is propped up on their backs because without them, we wouldn't have an industry. Yet the hiring practices for front of the house, guest-facing 
positions almost never goes to people of color. I absolutely was guilty. I am guilty of that. And it's a tough thing to deal with. I absolutely don't want to make this about me, but it definitely, in my head, I started screaming, am I a good person? Am I a good person? Am I a good person? Am I a racist? I don't think I am, but you know what? Look at my all-white staff. Not now. We're, I think, doing a better job. But if I were looking at my restaurant on paper, I would look at me and say, that dude is a racist. And there are things, things that we've tried to do to shore that up. Where we advertise for jobs is a big one. When we were opening Chef Special, I drove all around the city to all kinds of community centers and the YMCAs and churches and put up our help wanted signs with a phone number, not just an email, a phone number, an address, come, show up. I think it helped. We pay people's monthly bus fare because it's the right thing to do. You shouldn't ding somebody for not having a car. You shouldn't say, here's your X amount of dollars. Now you have to figure out how to get to a job that is in another neighborhood because there are no jobs in your neighborhood. This isn't like one of those, well, they chose to work here. There are no jobs. There are no businesses. There's 70, I think 77 neighborhoods in Chicago. There are neighborhoods that don't have a fucking grocery store, right? That's crazy. If they don't have a grocery store, they don't have a shoe store. They don't have a movie theater. They don't have a laundromat. They don't have a bodega, or they do have a bodega, and all it sells is crap. And there's one guy working there, and that's it. That's a job. We want to provide the jobs, and we have to make it easier for people to have them. We have to be upfront and honest about the person coming from the south side of Chicago saying, I can't work too late because the bus doesn't run. What are you going to say? Too bad? You can't have this job? We need to be malleable. We need to be able to say, okay, well, this is a position you can have because it fits within your framework of hours, and we're not going to ding you. We're not going to pay you $19 an hour because of that. We're going to pay you $20 an hour, just like everybody else, and we're going to pay your bus fare. And if you miss the bus, we're going to pay your Uber. Shit like that is wholly important. I think that I got caught up a long time ago, and this is something I'm also trying to break, of being like, I'm the punctual chef. You know what I mean? Don't ever be late. Don't ever, like, you're going to get fucking lit up if you're a minute late. Five minutes early is late type of shit. And it's like, what am I going to do? Yell at a bus driver? What am I going to do? Yell at the rain? It's just ridiculous. It's unimportant if somebody is five minutes late. It's unfucking important. And I refuse to be that guy who's like yelling at somebody who was, this is not a classification of all people on the South Side by any means or anything like that, but who was born into poverty, who didn't have a fucking fighting chance to begin with and has the balls to come and email me for a resume or for a job with little to no experience or wants to learn or doesn't know what they're getting into. What am I going to do? Sink or swim, motherfucker. Here you go. Like, uh-uh. That's not the contract. The contract is they have the balls. I have the time. Every time. I have the patience. I have the time. And I, I'm trying to have the patience. 
This is not yay me. This is something I'm working on. But it's like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy anymore. And I'm embarrassed that I was ever that guy. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I think this is good advice for every industry is don't be an asshole. If you learn something that you don't think is right, or if somebody was mean to you, this isn't your opportunity to do that to somebody else. This is your opportunity to turn that shit into literal fucking waste. Get rid of it. It has no place in society or in any industry. If somebody was horrible to you, how does it make anything better for you to be horrible to somebody else who doesn't deserve it? There are going to be people who fucking deserve it. Be horrible to them. This is not some hippy-dippy shit. There are people in this world that I fucking hate. I have no problem being horrible to them, specifically to them. (laughs) That doesn't mean it needs to eat me up inside. That doesn't mean that the next person to walk in the door is going to catch shit. Like, what's the point? It doesn't make me feel good. That's Chef Jason Vincent. For more on the Chef's Restaurant, visit GiantRestaurant.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.